We're in 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to continue on in what we've been talking about, and we're going to begin reading. Um, We're going to read verse 1 through 9 this morning, and I'm going to ask you to consider some things. Um, We're not going to... we're, we're not going to um, take things as deep as what I would like to uh, for the sake of time, but I think it's really, really cool when we look at chapter 3 and where we are in verse 8 and 9. We're going to start in verse 1 because I, wanna, I want you to see the flow of this and I want to tie things together, but this is what I really want you to consider this morning. Long-suffering for love. Now, as we get started this morning, we think about long-suffering and what, what is, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, but long-suffering, God's long-suffering and our long-suffering genuinely should be motivated because of love. So this morning, I just want you to think about long-suffering for love. Let's read verse 1. Well, I'm going to be reading in the New King James. It says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition or destruction of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. We're focusing on verse 8 and 9 now. This one thing, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, or if I can just say you, us, make it personal, The Lord is long-suffering toward me, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, we've mentioned this last week, but I want to reread Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. I'm going to read in the uh, ESV. Just want to remind you that the scripture says, he is the image. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So as we're reading this, I don't know about you, but as we're putting all these verses together, for me, there's just so much in it. With our study team, it's been a really fun time because 
just batting things off one another and just challenging one another. And for me personally, when I look at these verses, I just have all kinds of scientific things that are jumping out at me. I don't know if, if when you read these verses, you have the same approach or the, the, the same things are jumping off the page. But for me, what I want to do this morning is I want to just throw out some big scientific concepts from these verses. First, how the world came into existence. He mentions creation. And if, and if you have, for most of your life, if you have believed the concept of evolution outside of design and a creator, then I'm going to really challenge your thinking this morning. And if I annoy you and irritate you and I kind of sandpaper you this morning, hallelujah. That's okay. Because what we're talking about here, the God of the Bible, there is this concept of how the world came into existence. We use the word creation. Second, collapse of and damage to the globe, the flood. And I mentioned last week that if you look globally, there's all kinds of historical references and part of traditions with groups that have all different kinds of religious beliefs about a worldwide flood. Number three, the sensitive balancing of detailed components. Now we're going to watch something in just a few minutes that's going to highlight this. But when I look at the intricacy and the detailing of these components and the balance, you see God's word. Now, some of you may not see that as a scientific concept, but it absolutely is. And part of what we see in scripture that what binds and holds all of this together is God himself and his word. It's part of this incredible process. I want to mention the time continuum, eternality. I don't know about you, but it's difficult for me when we're talking about this time continuum and God is being presented to us as a God who's outside of time, in time, created time, not bound by time, and his reference for time is different than our reference for time. So Todd, when we were talking this week, he mentioned um, a teaching and a lesson that really made a big impact on him, and so I just want to pass it on to you because it really resonated with me. A lot of us look at time as a linear thing. This is how we view time. So then when we come to this passage and we're looking at time as a linear thing, we're trying to figure out, okay, where does God fit on this line? And then our minds are blown because there's a different perspective. And so one of the things Todd said is that look at time as an arch. Now, this is just an illustration just to kind of help our minds. But if you look at time as an arch and then God is somewhere outside of this arch because he can move in and out. His view of time is different because he is creator and he is bigger. He's more amazing. So this arch creates a different perspective of when we view the eternality of this time continuum. The last thing I want to mention this morning is the coming destruction of the planet. A lot of movies, a lot of big stuff about that, whether you believe in the Bible or not, you know, um, but think about it the day of judgment or apocalypse. You know, some of you, you've got some movie, I just lost it for about the next three or four minutes, okay? But just think about the, what's gonna happen to this planet and what's the teaching. Now, one of the things that I just wanna share with you this morning is 
We've got this video, and I don't know if you saw it on Facebook, but we posted it yesterday, and it's a little bit longer. We're going to just show a shorter section this morning, and I hope that you'll see that the people that were involved in the scientific presentation of this information, I think it'll be a real, it'll be a real blessing, and they do in three minutes and 15 seconds what would take me 15 minutes to do, and some of you that have a brighter mind, you'd be like, dude, you should have stopped 10 minutes ago. So we're just going to watch this and follow along with this, and I think it will help reinforce some of the things we were just talking about. From galaxies and stars, down to atoms and subatomic particles, the very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered by even a hair's breadth, no physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry. Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life-permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could form and life couldn't exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result, no stars, no planets, and no life. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by the cosmological constant, a change in its value by a mere one part in 10 to the 120th parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly or too slowly. In either case, the universe would, again, be life-prohibiting. Or, another example of fine-tuning. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed to an incomprehensible precision of one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. The fact is... Our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these, and many other numbers, have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge. Wherever physicists look, they see examples of fine-tuning. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. If anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features that the universe has, he's hiding his head in the sand. These special features are surprising and unlikely. What is the best explanation for this astounding phenomenon? There are three live options. The fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design.
mind-boggling numbers and consideration. What I want to do is just give you some words and then I want us to tie some things together. Glorious. Majestic. Preeminent. All-powerful. Holiness. Eminence. Pure. Praiseworthy. Exaltation. Magnificence. Stupendous. Or just a few words to help us understand the reality and the presence of our holy creator, designer God. As we, as we think about these things, and even as Peter was proclaiming to this group of people, I feel like that one of the things that we've lost within the American church is the mystery of God. God is incredible. If you're here this morning and your religious experience, your view of God, if you can put God in your little box or your little lunch bag and he fits in there nicely, then you've got a misconception of the God that we are talking about because he is absolutely mind-boggling and incredible. Our God is a mysterious God. And the gospel that we are talking about this morning is still a mysterious thing. It's even hard to comprehend because the level of grace, the level of investment for our ability to repent and enter into relationship with him is not just a trivial small thing. It's incredible. And what I want us to be, I want us to be the kind of church family where we can just revel in and we can celebrate the mystery of the greatness and the holiness of God. Some of you, when you come and you talk to us and you ask some deep questions or when I'm sitting in a Bible study and we're reading a passage and somebody makes a statement and I'm just kind of like, wow, I have never, ever considered that before. I've had people look at me and go, Pastor Tim, what? I'm like, no, I see the world. I see the scripture through my lens, my experience, my education, my personality. So I'm in, I'm in Bible study with somebody else and the Holy Spirit reveals something to them. I'm just like, that is beautiful because we serve this incredible, big, mysterious God that his spirit is alive and working in this world and in our lives. I am not trying to fit God in my box. I'm just trying to be in his. And there is great comfort in that. Let me read Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9 in the New New International Version. It says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is what I really want to present to you this morning. I want you to think about this in light of what we're talking about. There has been, if you've been paying attention now, it's more of an underground thing because it's not going to be in normal media, the normal media trail of information. But if you've been paying attention over the last 10 or 15 years, there is a growing body of scientists across different disciplines that have been, they have spent their life's work 
looking at the definition, the detail, and all the intricacies of our created world, and they have begun to move away from this big explosion, like incredible detail out of chaos concept, whatever phrasing you want to put on that, and they are actually moving toward designer slash some type of creator. Because if you will address the science without coming to it with a preconceived idea, you can't help but see and understand the detail and the intricacy and all that goes on behind the scenes with this beautiful balancing act, just like what we saw in the video a few minutes ago. So let me just get you to think about creator designer. If you can move from Whatever your belief system is and move toward a creator designer concept, you begin to see a bigger picture than just this big, huge cosmic explosion. And let me just remind you, if you, if you are and if you have been or if you're listening and you're an evolutionist and you purely believe that, this is what I get a little frustrated with on a personal level. Don't present these theories to me and then try to superimpose all these other standards of kindness and morality on me if you say that survival of the fittest is a legitimate concept and portion of our development, let's just think about through the real ramifications of that. You get what I'm saying? And so more scientists are moving toward and believing in designer. And so what it does is it creates this big picture view, you begin to see that there is some detail. There's a reason for this because part of the thing that's sad about this certain belief system that is godless is it creates this hopelessness. You hear people say all the time, why am I here? What's the point of this? Why does this life matter? Because that is a logical conclusion of that type of basis for thinking. You go from big picture and then what you begin to do is you begin to see this creator designer you're looking at scientific reasoning. There's a reason for things. And as you begin to see this evidence, you look at the pure evidence, allow it to stand on its own. And then what I'm seeing more and more is that when you can move toward this designer, then it is much easier to make the leap toward the God of the Bible. So if there is this designer creator, who is it? What does it look like? And then you begin to consider the God of the Bible. And then, this is what's amazing, then this big picture begins to hone in, and with the God of the Bible, it becomes a smaller picture. And within this smaller picture, we see that now there's a personal application to all of this. And it begins to give meaning and purpose to life. There's a reason, just as there is a reason for the existence of, of the universe and our planet and all the things in it, then it becomes even more applicable that there's a reason for me to be here. And in that process, there's this faith that's experienced for the first time. And what does it say in Hebrews 1? Faith is not just this blindless leap. Faith is actually the evidence of things that we can't see with the naked eye. So this designer evidence, scientific information, it makes it easier to move into a faith, and then you see the evidence with faith. Now, what I want to do is I just want to talk in the process of this. Thanks, Andrew, for helping me out this morning. Andrew said he gave me this, or he said that I could use 
he's not going to give me this because it's a 150-foot line that he still uses. And I messed it up for him because he had it all laid out. So you're welcome. I am consistent. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what he didn't want to have happen. You're welcome, Andrew. So I just want you to see this. I want you to get a, just trying to give you a visual picture. Oh, sorry, Caleb. Um, David, <laughs> new ball. So look at this. We're talking about the long suffering of God. Look how far he's out. I think that he's got enough out there that he could probably go out the door and probably to the end of the woods. I want you to view this as God's long suffering. It's been a long time since I pulled the line out. We did it one time at the Stone Chapel many, many years ago. And then I want you to look at this as for us, this is our long suffering. And for some of you, this is way bigger. You're sitting there going, no, that doesn't represent mine. Mine's a lot thinner and shorter. My flashpoint, no, 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 no. I ain't got, some of you would be happy with this level of long suffering. But what I'm trying to show you here and just trying to give you an example is it's difficult when we come to these passages because what we naturally do is we interpret what we read through our own lens and our own life experience. And so what I really want to challenge you with this morning is that God's long suffering is mind-boggling. It's different than ours. And what's crazy here is you take that the, the, what he's talking about, about the scoffers and the false presenters, uh, the false influencers, the ones that are throwing these stones, they're actually taking God's attributes and trying to use them against him as an accusation instead of them embracing the beauty of why he is what he is. So let me read it. Let me, let me give you the Greek meaning for long-suffering. To be patient in bearing the offenses and injuries of others. To be mild and slow in avenging. To be long-suffering, slow to anger, and slow to punish. God's long-suffering toward us individually. Thank God He doesn't respond to us the way we respond to ourselves. Thank God we are here this morning and he is not executing judgment or punishment on us now for what we've already done up to this point in our lives. Long suffering that is different than our definition. Peter is contrasting the eternality of God with the impatience of human expectations. One of the things that a lot of us have in common this morning is that we are very impetuous. We don't like to wait. So many scriptures, Genesis, Revelation, on wait, I say on the Lord, but that's another lesson. We'll move on. The Greek meaning for repentance here 
is to come to the point of repenting or to actually be brought to repentance. Let's consider that the false teachers and mockers, they're actually wanting to use God's patience, his long suffering, as an argument against God when in reality, what it should do is create repentance within them. Let me read from Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 in NLT. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Verse 4, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth? Wants everyone to be saved and understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is a message God gave to the world at just the right time. Just the proper time. I want to reiterate verse 9. But his long-suffering toward us, he is long-suffering toward me, he's long-suffering toward you, long-suffering, why? Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We can't even comprehend the type of love. It's difficult for us to grasp the long-suffering approach of God, and yet encapsulated and part of that motivating push, what propels his long-suffering is his great love for us. Mind-boggling love. You say, but Tim, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the things I've hidden stuff from other people. You have no clue. I don't need to know. It doesn't matter. He says, without reservation, Peter understands all these years later from all the boo-boos and public pronouncement of failure that he's experienced and the world has known about. It's been recorded in the scripture. He says, there are incredible, we can experience the very thinking nature experience of God. And we need to guard all these things that we've been talking about. It's like It is being focused down to verse 8 and 9, and there's like this crescendo here of what is the reason for all this? Because God loves us so much that he puts up with, he pushes off all this stuff longing for us to repent. God has a much larger desire for people to turn to him than we can even comprehend. Father God sent his one and only son to make a life-changing, forgiveness-oriented, spiritually transforming relationship possible. New American Standard 95 version. I want to read John 3, 16 through 18 for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What does it mean, begotten son? Unique, only one of his kind. 
unique. He's the only one of his kind that whoever you meet, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten, remember, the unique, the only one of his kind, Son of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2 in the NLT. For this good news, that God has prepared his rest, has been announced to, to us just as it was to them, but it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. In other words, another way of saying that, they did not combine what they heard with faith. Now, I want to read Isaiah 55 to you, but I want to read the two verses before what I read to you in verse 8 and 9. No. New International Version. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon we get a glimpse of the heartbeat, the character, the nature of God. Peter says, he is holding off, waiting for that next person to believe. And the bigger concept, if you really want to look at it from an eschatology standpoint, blows my mind if you think about waiting for that last person to believe before things go, that last harvest of Gentiles. Some of you say, why doesn't God? There is somebody that has the opportunity to repent because God is long-suffering with our junk. Is it you today? God has not given up on us. He longs for us to believe, to trust, to have faith in his good news of repentance. Father, God is long-suffering on our behalf, waiting and longing for us to turn to him in faith. This morning at home, Mark chapter 8, I was reminded. So with this, I'll close. What does it matter If you get everything in this world system, you attain everything that you've been looking for on a physical level, within your family unit, socioeconomic, what does it matter if you achieve everything that you think is going to bring you prominence, health, wealth, success, whatever your terminology is, and yet with that pursuit, you lose your own soul? 
Because it's your soul, it's that inner spirit that God has placed within you that makes you different from the animal kingdom because it is that soul that has the eternal portion of you. And to literally experience everything that you can physically in this whole world and yet to lose your own soul, to be separated from God forever with that eternality component that's hard to understand. Is it going to be worth it? The whole reason that Jesus came and lived and died and did what he did, which is mind-boggling, is for each and every one of us, the scripture says, Peter proclaims it because he knows it, God, Father, is willing that nobody, he doesn't want anybody to perish, but to actually have the gift of repentance to turn to him, turn their back on their own way, turn to him, that's what faith is. But just like what I read, it's a choice we make because we believe. The gift of repentance has been made available by the blood of Jesus. Will we avail ourselves and seek his face and ask for forgiveness? Believe in him. There may be somebody here today that today is your day. And can I just tell you what I've seen taking place over the last 10 or 15 years? More people within religion repenting of their religious ways and their earnings and their keeping track and their systems and repenting and coming into genuine faith relationship with Jesus. And what I see happening is the spirit of the living God comes and meets them there and they know that they've been born again because the spirit lives in them and there's a transformation and there's a genuine relationship and they've been set free. Maybe you're one of those people today. So Father, I thank you for what Peter is proclaiming to us. And Father, I ask for functional life-altering repentance this morning. In the mighty name of Jesus, by your Holy Spirit that is drawing and sifting and working, I ask that you would purify us, that you would cleanse us, and that you would help us to be the kind of family, the kind of body, the kind of flock that Alan proclaimed earlier, that we would passionately pursue you. And I thank you that I get to experience repentance every day. I thank you for your long suffering. I thank you for your love for us. I ask that you would add to your church, that you would draw people to yourself by your spirit today. Through your son, amen.